Right, hello and welcome along to yet another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Mild Mannered Max, although as we all know by now that's not my real name, but then what is real? Anyway, this evening or this morning or this afternoon, depending on where and when you're listening, we're going to be taking a look back over an article I wrote in October of 2018 about what I determined to be the top 50 Britpop records. The songs that I felt painted the most accurate picture of that time in British pop music. And because I'm one of those types of people, there were rules for this. The first rule was that only records that were released between the 30th of March 1992 and July the 30th 1997 would be eligible for inclusion. And we'll get to the whys and wherefores of that. I wasn't allowed to include any band or artist more than twice so as to stop it becoming one of these things where there's just you know, 15 Oasis songs and 25 Blur songs. There was no attempt to be indier than now uh, by deliberately selecting sort of B-sides and album tracks that nobody has heard of, by bands that nobody has heard of, and fourth and possibly most importantly, absolutely no reef. And to discuss all of these things with me uh, on this episode, I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime and good friend, Mr. Nick Amys. Nick, hello. Hi. It was really right. hard. It was really hard not to laugh during that. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we should we should point out for people who are listening that that little introduction was done live and off the cuff with Nick <laughs> sitting on the other end of the line, pretending that he wasn't there. Uh, I, I, yeah, I had I had things to say, but I, yeah, <laughs> like a, no reef. Well, what, what, no, what, reef. Yeah, no reef. Well, I, do, I'm do with you. you. No, no, no. I'm absolutely. Ah, I'm absolutely with you. But I I, I saw there was a there was a Twitter back and forth today i noticed between uh, a new comer on the Britpop scene i don't even know who that is it's just called Britpop on twitter and all right uh-huh. and i don't know if it was brits and pieces or Britpop memories but they were basically saying one band name and then the other one was going no Britpop and yes Britpop and then <laughs> reef came up and i just thought you come on <laughs> well don't even go I- there i mean yeah, you can argue that bands in that time should then be included in the debate, but oh, come on. Anyway, Reef, I nearly, yeah, laughed. No, no, I, I nearly laughed in your intro just through that, but shall we? Quit? No, no Reef, no Reef, no reef. Um, under no any reef. circumstances, or or Babylon Zoo, but we'll maybe come to that another time. Right, so yeah, Nick, you kind of f- followed this, uh, and in fact, you contributed to a follow-up piece that that. I did on this particular article where we looked at the the readers' lives, if you like, version of this this list. But tonight we're going to look at the records that I uh, decided were the definitive records. I mean, not really definitive, as in you know quotation marks. Obviously, how on earth do you define such a broad range of bands and almost ten years of music? But these were the fifty that I felt best told the story of Britpop. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it. Um, and I think there's going to be agreement here and I think there will be some disagreement either over the songs that I've chosen by the bands and possibly even over some of the songs that have been included so shall we shall we get down to it so I think that Britpop starts <coughs> officially with pop scene by blur and I, I get it I understand that there are people who think that you know Britpop stretches as far back as the 
the Kinks and the Beatles and the Who and the Small Faces. I understand. But when I talk about Britpop, I'm talking about that sort of early to late 90s British, almost exclusively guitar-based music, although not exclusively guitar-based music. Um, and for me, that starts very definitely, no maybe, with Pop Seam mm -hmm. by Blur. thoughts on that i totally agree i yeah and we, we've talked about this when we've uh, we've touched on well we, we more than touched on we kind of cuddled with blur mm. on the when we went through uh, modern life is rubbish um there's a good point you made about going back to the the kinks and maybe small faces and stuff like that as well but where do you stop then do you go back to i don't know classical music because it is british you know, I, I think yeah. I think Britpop is of a time, and I think you have to then you have to then define a year where it began. And that's debatable, of course, between everybody, and where it ended. And I don't think you can say that what happened in the sixties is Britpop. You can say that it's British pop. Exactly. Yeah. But it, that, I mean, but that, that's the big difference, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's exactly. What's British pop and what's Britpop? Because yeah. I mean, I've I've seen people talk about maybe slightly less tenuously, including the likes of the Happy Mondays and very definitely the Stone Roses. And there, there are cases to be made for including second coming era Stone Roses songs in a list of Britpop. But again, they kind of, they come before this point. And I think the, the crucial thing for me with Britpop is, does it arrive post-grunge? You know, has, has grunge already kind of began to push its tentacles into British culture because in fact it's interesting I was watching a, a really fantastic thing on, on YouTube today I, I'd never seen before I don't know I'd missed it have you seen this John Doran of The Quietest talking with Brett Anderson I don't want to get too bogged down in Britpop stuff but yes did you read the not at all spurious uh, opinion piece recently that seemed to blame Brexit on Britpop wow <laughs> No, I didn't read that. It's, uh, I mean, you don't really hear much about Brexit these days, do you? It's, <laughs> what, what happened to that? I mean, you know, it's a bit of a flash in the pan. I think Britpop is, is to blame for quite a few things, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought of Brexit as being one of them, but, you know. I've seen him doing the British Masters series yeah, with that Vice, it. but I haven't seen him do this one with Brett now. Right, so he does this, it, it, yeah, that's exactly the series it is. It's the British Master series, and I have a bit of an issue with John Doran because he got in a bit of a below-the-line comment spat with me on The Quietus at one point. But he's, he's talking to Brett Anderson, and even Brett, who I think has a complicated relationship with, with Britpop, at best it's complicated, at, at worst it's pretty simple, and that is that he doesn't like it. But... <laughs> He mentions in this conversation with John Doran the reaction to American cultural imperialism, which for me reaches its high or low point with the grunge thing. So right, that, that's why I 
draw a line, a starting line with pop scene, because yeah. by that point we've already got you know Nirvana, we've already begun to see that kind of influence creeping in, um, and and for me pop scene is is also a record that was informed by Blur's experiences of two things, one of relative failure and second of being cast adrift in America on that kind of post-leisure tour. All yeah. of a sudden they find themselves in America where nobody knows who they are, nobody's interested. The scene back home is moving past them and beyond them and Damon is looking at this kind of, I think it was him that coined the phrase or he certainly pinched off something, the coca colonization of Britain mm. and it worries him and concerns him. And I don't think for nationalistic or jingoistic or xenophobic reasons, I just think he thought there was a danger that something really valuable could be lost. And pop scene is the kind of embodiment of that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I would imagine most people who tune into to the podcast and read your stuff on the blog, they um, they're aware of Star Shaped, and if you watch that, you can see that um, you know they struggle and come back, and then they have to kind of get a get to grips with uh, you know what's really happened to the country while they were away, and what's happening to the music. And I think you pointed it out to me. Uh, there's one scene when they're at this festival, and someone they're talking to some kind of grungy hippie-ish kind of girl and she's trying to explain it to them and then they're lost they don't know what you're talking about you've you've missed the point you're not getting what we're coming from we don't know where you are and there's this kind of discrepancy between what the band blur sees as their own country and what it's become since they've been away and i think that's one of the, the that's a crucial point and i think for me and we, we, we've been over this a number of times. I think uh, being a, a big Blur fan, and you too, um, you know, since Leisure, and uh, then this came out when Pop Scene came out, it changed pretty much everything. And for them, the move from perceived bagginess, even though I think it was chucked in, uh, Leisure was chucked in wrong. Yeah, I would that. agree. <clears throat> and we've talked about that before. Yeah, um, and then it's become something else with pop scene just as the beginning of Britpop started with pop scene I would say and agree with so this is why it remains one of my favorite Blur songs and favorite songs full stop and I said um, you know I think at the time it said all it you know, it said a lot of what needed to be said at the time and uh, you know it, it was difficult because did you did we really know what what Damon was going on about at that time what was this scene he was going on about what was this pop scene what was this absence of a way of life he was going on about because you know it's, it was so abstract in a way especially if you were in some kind of provincial town away from the capital where these things were actually starting to bubble up and the cool kids were starting to congregate together and make music that would you know change the world what does this actually mean but it, it, it still meant a lot to hear it because it was so different and I remember hearing it for the first time on the car radio when I was on the way to work in my dad's car he used to drop me off this this is when I had a completely other life I used to repair cars for a living if you can believe that <laughs> and on the way <laughs> and on the way to the garage he would drop me off at this ungodly hour and we'd always have the radio on and I'd fallen asleep and I'd woken up to this churning kind of fuzzy cacophony and this jaunty, urgent bass line. I was like, what's this? What's this? And it became blur. And it was like, okay, something's changed. 
or something is about to change and something inside you know even though you didn't understand what where he was coming from because you weren't part of that they were he was talking about damon was talking about what he was experiencing something which was bubbling up starting to become something you still understood you still knew it applied to you because it was going to be relevant to your life i think and that was when i felt a new dawn was on the horizon so i would definitely a hundred percent agree with you that that is the kickoff point and it deserves its place on the top 50 for sure no question on my part well the, the interesting thing as well though about popsin is it was a relative failure uh, mm. you know like for you and i a top 40 single would be the high point of our creative endeavors and i've heard your band so yeah well, th- th- there is the low point of anybody's creative endeavours. But, but Popstein, you <laughs> know, I think... For that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it made, like, number 32 or something in the charts. Yeah. And and actually, for a band who've already had a bit of money chucked behind them mm. from a label, who've already had an album, and who've already broken the top 20, that's going in the wrong direction. Yeah. So yeah. although it's the starting pistol for what went on to become this kind of pop cultural phenomenon it, it's a pretty inauspicious start right i mean it doesn't even break the top 30 i don't yeah. think they even got on top of the pops with it no 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 i don't think they did and i, I think it's um it's 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 a hindsight hindsight thing to look back on and see that as the starting point it's like i don't know until you look back from now back at history it was the uh, you know shooting of Franz Ferdinand not the band although (laughs) some would advocate that Um, (laughs) you know would at the time that didn't that wasn't obviously a a huge deal anyway either but I mean you know looking back uh yeah it's it's not a an auspicious start it kicked it off for me and uh, for a lot of people what's interesting as well is that it's only I think just about eight weeks later, we're looking at May 1992. Mm-hmm. We then have a record which is really important for, for, for both of us uh, because we're both huge fans of this band as well. So we get The Drowners by yeah. Suede at that point. Despite Brett's protestations, and I think it's it's interesting with Brett and his attitude towards Britpop, I actually get it completely. I, I I totally get where he's coming from about why he wants to reject it because of what it became. You know, a band yeah. like a band like Suede, a person like Brett Anderson was never going to be comfortable with loaded and lad culture and the kind of more boorish elements of, of what happened to British guitar Ooh, music. No. no, no, absolutely, absolutely. But, but 1992, probably up to 1994, whether they're comfortable with the label or not, there's no doubt about it that, that Suede were a significant 
part of Britpop and the Drowners is a, a crucial record in that for me. Yeah, I love the Drowners. I think it's one of the three or four top songs from Suede's debut that I chose when we reviewed it a few weeks back. That's right. saying that I remember that I chose Metal Mickey in the Reader's Lives Alternative <laughs> 50 and explained that song's significance as well to me, to you when we talked about it in our Suede episode. And I think what I wrote in the um, the Reader's Lives 50, it said it was when I first heard it, I thought things were about to get really weird and twisted. And, and in a way they did, but not in the way that I imagined, whatever that might have been. Yeah. Things things had been all baggy and druggy until this taut and speedy waif came poncing through the gaff with its outlandish and frankly ridiculous guitar, and I loved it. And while I never wore an acrylic shirt open to the navel, unlike you, I think, <laughs> I was a suede devotee onwards. So I think that even though I chose a different song when uh, you gave us, the listeners and readers, the opportunity, I would say... The Drowners is um, one of the classics off the album. And you can pick, well, I think we, when we actually went through it, we picked all of them except one. I think Moving was about the only one which we that didn't was only, pick. It was, it was the only one we didn't pick. <laughs> which we didn't pick as being a classic. So, you know, take your pick. I mean, even, even if there hadn't been a record inside the sleeve, the sleeve alone for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. says something. And only, I think really only a British band could have released a sleeve like this. It's, for people who haven't seen the sleeve, there's this very beautiful female model um, lounging uh, on a, a sort of little chair. Mm. And she is naked, but her body has been painted to make it look like she's wearing a sort of, I guess, 1940s-style gangster suit. Yeah, it's very kind wonderful. of deep purple, and she's got a, a painted-on sort of browny orange shirt and there's a tie that's been painted and she's got stubble painted on her and she's holding a gun and the whole thing and she's got a cigar i think as well and yeah yeah it's the kind of thing and the little yeah and the fedora and everything it looks great yeah and that's the kind of thing that would have brought it to the attention of the american authorities in the 1980s they would have they would have banned the record you know that yeah. could never have been sold in walmart but but here in britain it's just part of a long kind of tradition of sex and sexuality and glamour and uh in british pop music it yeah. it, it definitely had the sense of sex and glamour and something there was something dangerous about it, right? I mean, even yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too Freudian about things, but it is interesting. It is interesting that the model is holding the cigar yeah. over a part of her anatomy, you know, so it has this kind of phallic symbolism there. Oh, yeah, and I'm so sure. It's, it's, not, it's not accidental, it's not accidental. Any, of it. No, any of it. No, not at all. And the, the, the gun is also cocked. You know, it's ready yeah. to fire. You know, so there's all this stuff going on. Before you even get to the record, before you even get to the record, it's that. So, yeah, for all sorts of reasons, uh, The Drowners is a, a, a crucial, crucial record. Now, yeah. now I play a little bit fast and loose with uh, history because I yeah. put in... I mean, I'm, I'm right, you know, in terms of chronology, but I then chose Babies by Pulp, which, yeah. of course, was re-released, uh, I think, on the Sisters EP about two years later. But I popped it in here. Yeah, this is for anybody who enjoys hiding in wardrobes. 
So there'd be more of you than that. honest i wanted to make it look as if i was ahead of the curve but <laughs> babies by pulp yeah. uh, two, two things nick what are your thoughts on pulp we've never we've never talked about pulp i'm sure no. we will when we do one of our albums but what what are your thoughts on pulp and what are your thoughts on this song um uh, to start with there are absolutely no arguments from me that this should be included and it's one of the two big songs from his and hers along with do you remember the first time which for me they were they were my introductions to pulp before different class came out yeah and uh to be honest i haven't actually ever gone any further back or or to the beginning of that because i mean they were they were around for years i mean i, I read this was it the david kavanagh book about um mm. john peel's shows and they, they were around for like decades before they all seemed to be they like they, they seem to be like showing up and sending him like demo tapes in like 82 or something like that that can't be possible but you know the teenage jarvis cocker was had this vision of a band called pulp way 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 before anything actually kind of got any kind of attention so there's there must be a lot of stuff which i admit I have absolutely no idea about. If we get lip gloss chill on, I would be very yeah. You know, I, I would I would sit back and let her, you know, take the lead because I, I admit by my own you know, my own my, my own admission, I'm um I'm from his and hers onwards. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm the same, Nick. I'm the same. You know, it was it was his and hers was my introduction the gateway into the world of pulp for me i've dipped my toe a little bit in some of those i think, yeah. I think they were signed to fire was it fire records so I've, you know i've dipped my toe in a couple of those things but i've never given it the time that i think it deserves and you and you're right to point out that hopefully when we discuss his and hers that uh, lip gloss jill uh, if you don't know lip gloss jill if you're listening get on twitter and follow at lip gloss jill uh, a fantastic absolutely. character absolutely so for me, his and hers um, was was the start, and babies, and uh, do you remember the first time were the two songs which were like, well, okay, this is a band which I should be listening to. And for me, um, in the context of what was to come, his and hers, for me personally, I'll probably put a few noses out of joint with this but who cares you know i think it's a far superior album to different class and uh and is similar in its importance as a defining Britpop record as modern life is rubbish is by blur over park life so i think that those 
those two albums i mean if you look at them they inspire an actor's building blocks for this cultural and social change which came and i think that his and hers and modern life and is rubbish are those types of albums whereas i know different class and park life are maybe the cherries on the top of the already kind of quite extravagantly layered cake you know they'd already like built up quite a bit of popularity and uh so um yeah for me yeah like i've said so babies and do you remember the first time are more important to me and better songs than the later singles which just kind of added like I don't know, vulgar decoration to the Britpop gatto, I think. <laughs> uh, that would be, yeah. that, if, we, we, if we're going like British Bake Off, that's my take on it. <laughs> there you go, everybody. Nick yeah. Amy's is the Mary Berry of uh, the, the Britpop podcast yeah. world. Leave um, the vulgar decoration off and stay with the, the his and hers sponge. <clears throat> I, think you, I, think, I think you and I are singing from the same hymn sheet, to be honest, again, Nick. I... Yeah. I go back and listen to his and hers a lot, but but I don't go back and listen to different class a lot. And I, I, I definitely listen to babies yeah. more regularly than I would listen to common people, for example. And that is not to denigrate or decry the significance or the brilliance of both the album and single that I've just mentioned, but something about his and hers era pulp is more interesting to me. I think... <clears throat> it's the it's the peculiarity of it all. It, it's a it's a very sort of defined and self-contained little world that, that that Jarvis Cocker had had crafted at that point. Whereas I think different class, and possibly this is hardcore afterwards, were responses to the the world that he was living in and observing at that point, as opposed to observations on the world that he had lived in. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. I mean, I could ramble on about that for a long time, but yeah, babies no, was one of the. I think that's a very good point to make. A very good point. I agree entirely. All right, good. Uh, now we get to a band and a a, a man. Oh. I, I I don't know a huge amount about. If I'm being really honest, uh, I know enough. I've got a lovely uh, story about this particular person. So this is Showgirl by the Auteurs. <laughs> Which comes sort of 1993, beginning of 1993. So the first three records we've discussed are all 1992. And so we're getting this head of steam begin to build up now. And yeah. then Showgirl by the Auteurs arrives, who, of course, are led by Luke Haynes. They'd supported Suede on their first sort of nationwide UK tour. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that because I certainly remember seeing the auteurs supporting Suede at a couple of venues in Scotland <clears throat> around about that time. Uh, Luke Haynes, of course, has always uh, shunned labels of any sort, I think it would be safe to say, uh, and yeah. certainly the, the Britpop one. But it's a, it's a lovely little record. You know, it's a, it's a really charming, uh, subversive in some ways, English pop record. But Haynes, more violently than most, I think, does not do the Britpop party. 
not at all. Not at all. I, I actually love the fact that Luke Haynes seemingly like detests being a rock star and the entire music industry <laughs> while That's being right. part of it, and, and and actually making very very good music. I don't. I, that kind of sits slightly weirdly with me. That yeah. You know, I mean, it's not unheard of, of course, that there's somebody who kind of hates the environment in which they have to work to be artistic that's nothing new yeah but he's venomous about it and that sometimes it's i mean you've you've written a lot lately and and have um brought back into our consciousness your views on morrissey mm. and yeah i know that, that that was a very heavy side paul that was a very heavy side that tells yeah. me very much Apart from what you've written about how you feel about Morrissey these days, and that's fair enough. But I, I find Luke Haynes to actually be more entertaining because he's actually so much more vicious and can be a lot more unintentionally funny about talking about the music industry and things than Morrissey ever has been. And certainly in, in, in recent years where he's become a bit of a bore. But um, anyway, back to just Showgirl. Great 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 song i really really like it and uh, but as i said in the readers lives list i think i actually went for i think i chose lenny valentino yeah which is uh, a wonderful record yeah but i think that was the probably more of the um the more commercial one out of them. maybe they that came later i'm pretty sure it came later i think maybe, it did not not much yeah. later but a little no. bit yeah i don't know and but that one was the one which always came up in the clubs that I used to go to at that time. And uh, as I said in, in the Reader's Lives list, I loved the House of Love. And I always thought that Luke Haynes was this bitter and twisted brother of Guy Chadwick. And, you know, the one had been rejected and cast out for doing various heinous things. But, um, yeah, I always thought that the, the auteurs were bleaker, but had that same kind of off-kilter vibe. And, um, yeah, and even though Luke Haynes had this real yeah he really really ha kind of hated <laughs> what he was involved with despite that he made this great music in the auteurs and uh along with early suede both of these kind of led me away from that kind of grunge sound which really didn't really fit well with me i mean i listened to it and yeah i wasn't i wasn't going to get into it you know it, it, it didn't talk to me enough and um i was looking around and uh I kind of followed Luke Haynes into the slightly dimmed light along with Brett Anderson. So even though I chose Lenny Valentino, I think this is a great, great song. And I think that um, this is one of the songs which um, built up the momentum of um, what early suede had done and pop scene. And, and uh, these were the ones which kept coming back night after night in the Britpop years, even Two or three years later, they still played them. So that's still, you know, that, that tells me that it still had cachet and it still had some, you know, had place in, in our history, even as it was developing. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think what's interesting as well about Luke Keynes is that he's not just playing around with the idea of rejecting Britpop. I mean, he, he genuinely doesn't, A, like the label, 
or be like very many of the bands, I don't think. I, no. And I'm not I'm not speaking out of turn here because I, I asked him about this on, on Twitter and he confirmed it. There was a what I thought might have been a slightly apocryphal tale that he had paid a musician, a session musician, I think maybe like a, a cellist or a double bass player, some something right. like that. Uh, he had paid them not to play on Gene's Drawn to the Deep End album. Really? Uh, such was his contempt for uh, Martin Rosser. Now, <laughs> that, that takes your sort of, uh, you know, interband rivalries and loathing of a scene to an entirely new level, right? I mean, you are you are serious at that point if you're dipping your hand into your pocket and saying to people, "I will pay you not to appear on that record." That's unbelievable. I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> true. Yep. Yep. Ah, uh, Luke Haynes. We, he he wouldn't he wouldn't talk to us. I'm sure, but if we could ever get him to like vent, I would love to hear what he would, <laughs> what he has to say. But for the someone to is, do that, for someone to do that, that is that's unbelievable. Well, that's you know the, the the funny thing about that story is is that I don't think. I mean, I know Martin Rossiter a little bit. For for a short while, I don't think it would be unfair or inaccurate, sorry, to, to describe Martin and I as acquaintances. Let, let's put it that way. Okay. And I don't I... think, knowing what I know about Martin, that actually he would be all that uh, upset by that story. I think Martin would probably find much to be amused by in that story. Um, and would probably like the... Yeah, I think he would like what it said. You know, I think he'd like he'd like what it said about somebody that they would be so enraged by him that they would that they would go to those lengths. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like yes, yeah, kind of a badge of honour in a way, I suppose. Right? I mean, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Right now, speaking of uh, peculiar, peculiar and arch yes. and eccentric Englishmen, we we turn our attentions now to a record by Denham. Hmm. Um, yeah. Now, D Denim, for people who, who might not know, they were the brainchild, the love child of uh, Lawrence, and we only ever call him Lawrence, uh, who was the leader of probably the, the, the best band that people haven't really ever heard of. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in the wider domain, that is felt. Yeah, and you absolutely. can you can head on to YouTube or some other streaming service and find Sunlight Bathe the Golden Glow or some other piece of work by Fell and see what Lawrence was doing in the 80s. Very shimmering, jingly, jangly, wordy, clever, funny pop music. And then he appears at the very start of the Britpop story. I mean, Denim and one of the bands that are cited on that infamous Select magazine front cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. This this album is really a, a homage, a love letter to the slightly less glamorous parts of glam rock. Would that would that <laughs> be fair? Yeah, so, I would so I would go as far to say that it's kind of pub rock. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. It's 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 that kind of it's it's not Bowie. You know, and T Rex. No. It's it, yeah, it's pub rock. It's it's you know a, a level below what was going on when people think about glam. And so he releases this album um, called Back in Denim, I think. Um, and yeah, is, the song yeah. that I chose was Middle of the Road, mainly because 
it provokes two reactions in me. The first reaction is is that I have to sing along. I, I can't not sing along. It's really <laughs> catchy. Yeah. And the second reaction is is that it forces me every time to laugh because it is genuinely funny. It's not a comedy record, but it's a really funny uh, pop song. And yeah. it's another one of those ones that I think a lot of people, when they were looking at the list, would probably be quite disappointed that Common People wasn't there or you know, Reef weren't there or whatever. Mm. And instead, I'd put the song that they maybe didn't know. And I can yeah. promise you, Nick, yeah. it, it wasn't an attempt to be, you know, kind of an indie snob. It wasn't an attempt to, you know, throw people a curveball. I genuinely love this record. Yeah, it's basically like a list of stuff he hates, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, I, I kind of, yeah, I agree. I mean, when um, when all this was starting, and I remember seeing the name Denim, and I thought, wow, they, they, they might be actually quite cool. Let's have a listen to those. And I think I heard Middle of the Road first, as well as, uh, what's the other one? You just mentioned it. I think it's actually the title of the album as well. Back like, in Denim. Yeah, we're back. We're back in Denim. And That's it's just right. like, what the hell's going on here? Well, I kind of <laughs> love. I kind of, kind of like that kind of pub rock, dirty glam revival stuff. I think heavy, heavy stereo tried to do it, but they actually were a bit too good. That's right. That's <laughs> whereas, right. whereas Denim were a bit like you could go down the pub and there'd be like these guys really just trying to like grind it out you may take a bit of notice but otherwise maybe you wouldn't you just be like okay there's there's some band playing but um it's a shame lawrence never made it into anything other than like a name on one of the greatest lost rock stars list or perhaps unluckiest yeah. blokes never to be a rock star despite great talent it's sad i don't know if you've have you ever read the um david Kavanagh book about creation I don't records. think I have, no. Oh, is it Magpie Eyes? Yeah, my Magpie yes, Eyes. Yes, I have read that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, McGee is, um, uh, McGee is just, you can tell that there's love there. He wouldn't have stuck with him. He tried, I think McGee tried his best through every incarnation to bring success to Lawrence with Felt and with Denim and with, you know, with all, all his projects, but he's just too weird and socially awkward i think you know <laughs> but a very talented musician obviously who, who everyone seemed to love and support because that's that's the impression i got from reading that book but nothing they did could make him into a megastar which was a shame because he, he i don't know he tried but i also think that he would not have handled it well if it had become reality you know if if well, one I, of his if one of I, his bands had become great i don't think it seems uncharitable of the universe to not have given lawrence a chance to find out whether or not he could handle it but i don't think he he might i think it would have been a bit too much i'm well, not sure I, what do you writing, well I'm, I'm wondering now that you mention in my magpie eyes are hungry for the prize which mm. again for people listening is a great book i i seem to remember in that book this might be a false memory. Yeah. Is he a bit obsessive compulsive? Yeah. I, seem to, I, I seem to think that there's a story involving maybe McGee going to his house, but the, the oven is covered in cling film or you're not allowed to use the toilet. Exactly. I can't, 
Is yeah, that, yeah. Am I right? I think I'm right, aren't I? He's, he's, yeah, he's, yeah. Got a, he's got a touch of the Kenneth Williams about him, right? This yeah, very yeah. kind of peculiar outlying figure. You know, I mean, Kenneth Williams is one of my other great obsessions. I love Kenneth Williams, and I think he was a hugely gifted actor. Not just a comic actor, but a hugely gifted actor. But his own peculiarities meant that it probably wasn't ever going to happen for him yeah. in the way yeah. that he wanted. And I think Lawrence is quite similar in some regards. I think so too, and I think you're right. I can't recall it entirely myself, but I have a feeling that both, I think McGee and Lawrence actually shared a flat together at some point. Yeah. Which uh, was, you can just imagine, I think it was a time when um, McGee relocated to Brighton and Lawrence came as well. And that was when Primal Scream also went to Brighton. Yes. Because this is before Screamer Delica took off. And they all started taking lots of ecstasy, ecstasy and partying a lot. And then there was this thing about Lawrence cling filming the oven and scrubbing the toilet or having something weird. McGee was out all the time partying and Lawrence was cleaning the place to the point where it was almost like sterile like surgically sterile or something <laughs> weird like that. I can't quite forget, remember it in in every single detail. But um, yeah, anyone anyone who wants to read a very, very cool and detailed book, David Kavanagh, rest in peace. You wrote a very, very enthralling history of what was anarchy in, I don't know, what would you say anarchy personified with creation records I hate the king, I hate your bearer, I hate hooker. Eye.